The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. All right, Pastor Chris has asked us to uh, read. Um, If you'll stand (laughs) and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come." you guys. You can keep your microphone. <laughs> yeah. Now everybody's going to be wanting to do announcements or read scripture so that. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> this is one of the benefits and one of the challenges of preaching verse by verse through the Bible or book by book through the Bible. Uh, because, you know, if, if you just grab text week after week, kind of whatever's on your heart, then you get to, uh, you, you get to dodge some of the harder texts. But I don't know that I've ever in 22 years preached on the unpardonable sin, but I'm going to uh, take a, a stab at it today. Uh, last week, we were in Matthew 12, verses 14 through 31. And we learned that... Uh, you know, it, it, it should be our desire to continue to serve God and, and serve people with passion and zeal. And so we saw that in order to do that, that we have got to emulate Jesus in the way that he ministered on the earth. And we saw that Jesus' ministry was God-centered. And in turn, you and I must be God-centered in our lives, not man-centered. We saw that Jesus um, ministered by the power of the Spirit And if you and I are going to be sustained, we must minister not in our own strength, live in our own strength, but we must minister and live by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. And then finally, we saw that Jesus' ministry was grace-infused, and you and I need to be gracious, merciful people in our proclamation of the gospel. Well, today, when we come to this text, we're reminded that when we live spirit-filled lives, when we live, when we uh, minister in, in grace and in spirit empowerment, that you and I will be faced with opposition. Jesus pulled no punches here. 
Remember, he's already told his disciples, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they come against me, they're going to come against you. And so today we're reminded that we've got to continue to minister even in the face of opposition. As we've looked throughout Matthew, we've seen that Jesus has gone about serving God and serving people. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom to all kinds of people. He's been healing the sick. He's been delivering the oppressed. He's been pouring out compassion on even the most marginalized. And yet, interestingly, some people have still rejected him. Especially and astonishingly religious leaders. And in our text today, the, the tension between this group of religious leaders called the Pharisees and between them and Jesus, this tension begins to build even more, continues to build. And the narrative uh, begins this morning with Jesus healing a man who is demon oppressed and he is blind and he is mute. But Jesus heals him and the man is set free from demonic oppression and he can immediately see and he can speak. And this is an undeniable miracle. Jesus did not bring this man with him to the crowds. This was no setup. People brought this man to Jesus. The miracle was undeniable. There were no smoke and mirrors. And so you imagine a crowd of people watching this take place, and you would think that everyone would be thrilled. I mean, that's a good day, right? A man known to be oppressed by demons, a man uh, who could not speak uh, and, and could not see is now healed. That's a good thing. And many people saw it that way. But you always got to have that one group. I've been in ministry long enough to know there's always somebody. We gave, uh, we, we, we gave uh, several bikes away. Um, my, like my second Sunday here, we did this big outreach, and we gave somewhere between 50 and 75 brand-new bicycles. You guys remember this? We, to, to children at VBS. Everybody got a bike. And, I mean, I was overjoyed. People were overjoyed. The kids could not believe what we were doing. And I actually had somebody in the church. They're no longer here, and I won't call them by name. But, but they came to me later, and they said... Um, they said, well, preacher, you know, I just don't know if that's what the church should be doing. You know, they may never come back to church. I said, well, they've got a bike now at least. And we, we want to bless kids whether they come, you know, whether or not they come to church. And so you've always got those people, right? And the Pharisees were those people. So they astonishingly became more hard-hearted towards Jesus after this miracle. And here's what I want us to consider today. The, the way we see these different responses by the crowds and the Pharisees. The way in which we respond to Jesus is everything. It has eternal implications. And it has many implications in this life as well. That's what we see in the text. So we're going to look at the different responses, the response of the crowd, and, and we're going to look at the, the response of the Pharisees. And then I'm going to address even today this unpardonable sin. So some of you have been kept up at night for years wondering if you've committed uh, that sin. And so hopefully today I can ease your mind a bit. So let's begin uh, to, by looking at these responses to Jesus healing and delivering this demon-possessed man. Number one, we'll look at the crowd's response. Look with me at Matthew 12, verses 22 and 23. 
The Bible says that then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed them. So that the man spoke and saw, and all of the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? How does the crowd respond? They respond in amazement, understandably. Again, it's an undeniable miracle, so much so that they ask this question that may not be significant to you, but I'm going to tell you why it is significant. They ask the question, could this be the son of David? What's that mean? Israel's first king was a man by the name of Saul. And if you know the story in the Old Testament, you know that Saul failed miserably as he did not follow the Lord. But God, being the faithful God that he is, raises up another king, namely David, who was not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, but was a man after God's own heart. And he was a, a wonderful king, a champion king, if you will, of Israel. And those were kind of the glory days for the Jews. And before David died in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's recorded a prophecy that was given by the prophet Nathan to David. And here's that, what that prophecy said. This is 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. The prophet said by the word of the Lord, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And listen to what he says. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this promise is that David's throne is going to be established through his son and that that son would build a temple. And the text points first to David's son, Solomon, who took the throne after David and, and, and began building that temple. But Solomon's story didn't end well. The temple would eventually be destroyed. And, and after Solomon came a host of pretty bad kings, if you know the story which led to Israel's demise and downfall. And it looked, after exile and all of this, these things happened to Israel, it looked as if their story was over. But how many know that God's promises are true? They're yes and amen. God had a son of David, the Messiah, the eternal God the Son, who would be born into this world through David's lineage and would be that messianic king, the Messiah who would come and inaugurate God's kingdom on the earth. And you say, well, I don't see that Jesus has built a temple. Oh, yes, he has. Friends, the temple was the place that, that, that well, it was the place that where heaven and earth overlapped. Let's say it like that. God's presence resided there in this veiled sense. But you remember that the veil has been torn and Jesus now, he, he is the presence of God to us. It is through Christ that we come into the presence of God. And so Christ has built this temple. He is the cornerstone, the Bible says. But then it doesn't stop there. He continues to build on that foundation because the book of John says that you and I uh, who are saved, who are in Christ, that live rivers of living water will not just flow to us, but will flow through us. So that we become channels of God's presence to other people. 
And so we, we, Peter says that we are now stones in God's temple. Christ is the cornerstone. We are the th that, that final temple of God. A beautiful thing. So the point is, is that Jesus is this Messiah. And the crowds of people have been witnessing these undeniable miracles that Jesus has been performing. And they're wondering still. They're wondering, could this be the son of David? Could this be our messianic king? But they still have their doubts, and here's why. Because Jesus, by their estimation, doesn't really fit the part. Many of you have heard me talk about the uh, great theologian Craig Keener. You heard me quote for him. If you've been here any time, I quote for him all the time. And he's a, uh, an intellectual of intellectuals. He's a theologian of theologians. He's a writer of writers. Uh, he's written countless books. But I, I would say to you that if you were to see Dr. Keener on the street, you would never think this is the guy that I've been quoting. He is a very, very soft-spoken gentleman. Very humble. Uh, you know, some professors, not all, but some professors tend to be a little bit arrogant. They're well-learned, uh, right? And, and so he's not like that in the least. So humble. He's not pretentious in the least. He, he's not well-dressed, and I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying he doesn't care a thing about fancy clothes and, and, and trying to, to look prestigious and all of that. And something really funny happened. Uh, so our district superintendent, Joe Girdler, had the distinct privilege of going to Craig's house and meeting with him and his wife. And he lives in a very, he lives in Lexington. He teaches at Asbury, or he lives in that area. I don't know if it's Lexington or Wilmore, somewhere in that area. But he has a humble home, and I've seen videos that he records in his basement. It's like this dark basement with just books everywhere, filing cabinets everywhere. So Joe Girdler gets to go to his house and meet with him. And what a privilege. And Joe is so appreciated, appreciative of his time. And so he says to him at the end of the day, he said, hey, I'd love to treat you and your wife to dinner. Where do you want to go? Want to guess what he said? McDonald's. My point is this, look the part or not, Dr. Keener is one of the most renowned intellectuals and theologians in the world today. And similarly to the, the, the crowd in our text, though Jesus' miracles are undeniable, he just doesn't fit the part that they have in their mind. Jesus doesn't look like the Davidic messianic king. He's not dressed uh, in, in kingly clothes, he's dressed as a common man. He doesn't act like the king that they're expecting because he doesn't come in military conquest. He doesn't come and obliterate their enemies. No, he comes and offers his life for their enemies. You would think that he would have well-trained soldiers around him, but instead he has Galilean fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and so on and so forth. He's not bloodthirsty. He's merciful and gentle. And let me just give an application point here that some people are, are slow to believe in Jesus as Savior because of misconceptions about who he should be. There are many people in our culture today that think if Jesus was really who he says he was, that people who come to him ought to have no more problems. Right? They think, man, if I come to Jesus, I ought to have a new Mercedes Benz in my driveway. I ought to never be sick again. My wife ought to be nice. Come on, somebody. 
And when it doesn't happen, they think, man, he must be a figment of my imagination. Friends, we've got to have an accurate picture of who Jesus is or we'll miss him. To the crowd, Jesus doesn't look the part. But the fact that Jesus is the Messiah is becoming more and more evident. And the crowd's minds, they're blown. And they respond in amazement. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they don't respond in amazement. They respond in anger. you imagine? Look at verse 24. The Pharisees heard it and they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Calling Jesus demon-possessed, essentially. You shouldn't do that, just to clarify. <laughs> Here, here's what's interesting. The Pharisees cannot deny the miracle that just happened. No smoke and mirrors. It's undeniable. So what do they conclude? Well, we don't believe he's of God, so the only other option, in order for him to be that powerful, he must be of Satan. And you know why this is? It's because of their hardness of heart. Jesus has called, remember, the, the Pharisees, he's already called them out on their misunderstandings of the Old Testament Scripture. He's called them out on their hypocrisy and false motives and prayers and charity and all of that. He's called them to repentance. How offensive. I mean, they knew that, that the common folk needed to repent, but these religious leaders, oh, they were above that. He called them out, and so their hearts have grown harder and harder towards him. No matter how many miracles they witness, they become so cynical so hard-hearted that they can't, they can't see Jesus as the Christ. And they're, they're to this point where they really say and perhaps believe that he's empowered by Satan. Friends, it's amazing what a hardened heart can do, isn't it? The Bible warns us, oh Christians, not to let our heart become hardened. People who have been through tragedies in their lives, and I don't want to minimize those tragedies, but they've, they've bought into that it's God's fault, and they've shaken their fist at Him, and now they're so bitter that it's hard for them to connect with the Lord. Husbands and wives who, because of things that have happened in the past, become so hardened that the thought of ever being happy, no matter what the spouse does, it, it, it's not enough because there, there's such a callousness of heart that that person can never be happy and love the spouse and respect the spouse that God's given them. We could play this out in any relationship in our lives. Hebrews 3.13, Jesus, or the, the writer of Hebrews says that to, to church folk, he says, brothers, exhort one another daily, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from the living God. So there's the claim. By the hardness of their hearts, the, the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus has done this by a demon. So what is Jesus' defense? He begins dismantling the Pharisees' accusations. He's so brilliant. I mean, he is God. Uh, but, but, but he begins, 
he begins dismantling the Pharisees' accusations through logical arguments. He doesn't just say, listen, I'm God. You know, Christians sometimes are bad about this. And, you know, people will oppose their faith and, and they're just like, well, you're just not, you just don't know God. You know, they're just, they spout something off. Listen, our arguments are logical. We have the truth <laughs> and we need to learn to defend the faith. He points out uh, first how the Pharisees' accusation is illogical and then how it's hypocritical. So number one, let's look how it's illogical. Look at verses 25 and 26. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? Jesus makes a real easy and logical argument here. If Satan uses Jesus as his agent to cast out demons who are also his agents, that's like shooting your own men in battle. Doesn't make a lot of sense. And Jesus doesn't deny the fact that Satan is evil, but he does imply that he's smarter than, than the Pharisees. He's not an idiot. And Jesus assumed that Satan is more rational than that. He said, listen, his kingdom would fall. And I just want to pause here and take just a little rabbit trail. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I don't do this often, but I think this is worth thinking about, though it's not the main point of the message. A city or a kingdom or a house divided against itself will not stand. Let's just pause here for a moment. There is, as we all know, this social political, cultural polarization. That's, it's, a, it's a narrative that's being fed to us by the media and by the government. Be careful who you listen to. This narrative has pitted black against white, poor against rich, cop against minorities, Republican against Democrats, so on and so forth. And there are certainly at any time issues between people groups and political sides and all of that, that that can be dealt with. But but do you understand what I'm saying? That it, it's it's painting the media is painting this narrative that that we're we're almost enemies with anybody who is different than us. And it's a dangerous game because if the media and the government can make us feel like enemies, first of all, they're profiting from all this. You realize that. If they can make us feel like enemies with our fellow Americans, then our country can't stand because a, a nation to fight against itself cannot stand. Let's not be foolish. Division is a ploy, a tool of the enemy. Satan loves a divided country. Our country's done a lot of good to alleviate suffering, not just here, but across the world. But if we're divided, we can, we'll be of no use to anyone. Satan loves a divided church. He loves, you know, this kind of backbiting and complaining and grumbling. That's why we work hard to, to, to keep the unity in this church. It's, he loves to make Baptists feel like they're, they're different and separate than Pentecostals. And Pentecostals that they're separate from Methodists. And Methodists that they're separate from uh, Presbyterians. And Presbyterians, you know, that they're separate from Lutherans. Because if we can feel different enough, though we all believe the same gospel, if we can feel that, oh, you know, we're somehow so different because we have some, some differences on minor, minor doctrines, and we, we begin to divide over those secondary issues, see, we're stronger together. 
So what happens is we get in our little, uh, you know, four walls and we think, man, we're so much better than the 400 other churches in Madison County. What if we joined together and quit dividing? What good could we do? And then finally, Satan loves a divided family. He loves you to pick at your spouse because a successful society is built upon successful homes, not broken homes. And it's not just about staying together, mom and dad. It's about loving one another. That's part of your vows too. I've heard so many people say, well, you know what, I... I, I'm going to stay together because I used to say this because God doesn't, you know, believe in divorce. And then it's like you che- treat your spouse like garbage. It's like, well, you're, that's in your vows also. It says, I'm going to love and cherish you in sickness and in health. And so if God can divide mom and dad or children and parents, then he's got the home. And from there on, the, the church crumbles, the, the nation crumbles, so on and so forth. So I, I digress. But, but Jesus is dismantling the Pharisees' accusation by showing that The argument's illogical. Satan's not divided against himself. And then he brings to light the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Look at verse 27. If if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, Jesus says, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. A reference to the Pharisees' sons is probably not talking about their blood relatives, but but it was a way in the ancient world to talk about your disciples or your followers. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that certain Pharisees used many these kind of magical incantations to try and cast out demons. You've probably seen the movies, right? Probably looks something like that. And Jesus saying, you're going to improve that, but I speak and the devil leaves? <laughs> and you're going you're gonna to say, I'm of Satan. Well, what's that say of your followers He's saying, oh, Pharisees, you better be careful what you say. Then we find the logical conclusion here that Jesus is not empowered by Satan, that he is, in fact, empowered by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 28 and 29. But if it is by the Spirit of God, Jesus says, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Because Satan would not cast out his own agents, the only logical conclusion is that Jesus has cast out demons by the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that because he has shown uh, through his works that the power of God is here, he says, listen, this proves that the kingdom is upon you. He has come to inaugurate God's rule in part. Jesus declares that that Satan's power is now limited because he's gone into the the devil's house and he's bound him. And he's a test that he has power over the devil, a truth we should now revel in. And the Jews were waiting on God's kingdom to come and yet that because again of the hardness of heart, they were about to miss it. And then Jesus does something. He moves from the defensive to the offensive and he gives warnings. And number one, he warns the crowds. And don't miss this. He doesn't just warn the Pharisees. He warns the crowds. Look at verse 30. These are compelling words, sobering words, I should say. Whoever is not with me is against me. 
Whoever does not gather with me scatters. It's worth thinking about. Many of the Pharisees, as we see here, are decidedly against Jesus. So they don't care, I mean, that they're against him, right? He's not speaking to them. But you got to understand there's a crowd of people who have witnessed this, and they're asking, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Lord? But now they're hearing their religious leaders say, this guy has a demon. And Jesus is saying to them, you may not be saying this, but understanding being on the fence is being against me. He draws a line in the sand. In other words, there's no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus. Jesus has offered many invitations to the crowds of people to come into the kingdom, to experience salvation through him. That's what Matthew is about. It's what Matthew is about. But Jesus is saying that opportunity is not going to last forever. And to not decide positively to follow Jesus, friends, it is to decide to reject him. There's no middle ground. You're with him or you're not. Then he moves on to the Pharisees and he talks about blasphemy. What is this unpardonable sin as it's become known? Look at verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit of God will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This has been a controversial and must discussed and debated set of verses here. But let me start here. Let's not blow through the first part of this verse to get to the unpardonable sin. Because look at the first part of 31. I mean, it's worth celebrating. It says that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people (laughs) in Christ. It's not universal salvation. This comes through repentance and faith in Christ. We know that. But here's what this verse tells us. It tells us we serve an enormously merciful God. It means there's hope for all of us. Oh, friends, that includes the one who committed murder. That, 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 that includes the one who committed adultery, the one who has stolen, the one who has lied. Brothers and sisters, that is fantastic news that we should revel in today. We serve a merciful God. But then comes the warning. It says a person can actually put themselves outside of that forgiveness how do they do that it's through this thing called blasphemy of the holy spirit well or against the holy spirit what is, what is blasphemy generally when simple terms it is to intentionally bring reproach normally through our words upon someone's good name in the bible it's it's bringing reproach to god's good name just something again we don't recommend doing look at on the screen will be Leviticus 24, 16. It talks about blasphemy. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. So don't blaspheme God this morning. How'd church go? I, I was stoned. Yeah. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Does this show you, I shouldn't make light of, does it show you the seriousness of of this sin? Punishable by death. 
But interestingly, Jesus says here that all types of blasphemy in him can be forgiven except for one. So let's, let's just look at the text again, verse 31. It says that, therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Next verse. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. That's interesting. Who is the Son of Man? Jesus. And the Son of Man, is a, it's a title for Jesus which designates His humanity. But not only that, it, it, it's drawn from Daniel chapter 7. And it's a kingly title. In, in Daniel 7, you might remember, it, you, you have the Son of Man going up on the clouds to the Ancient of Days, who is God. And so you have this King of Kings, Jesus, Son of Man. Think of this, this is radical. And he says, if you blaspheme, blaspheme me, you can be forgiven. Now, what would happen if you blaspheme any other king on this earth? Off with your head, right? What a gracious God we serve. King of kings. Jesus is not insecure. Neither should we be. Everybody is thinking offended about everything today. Folks, quit being offended if you are in Christ. If the King of Kings and your identity, if you're in Jesus, it's in Him. You're dead men and women walking. If He is not offended, why should you be? Well, they said this about me. So what? If God be for you, who can be against you? Here's what's so interesting. Remember, the Son of Man, it designates Jesus' humanity. Fully God, fully man. So someone who speaks against or rejects Jesus may do so out of ignorance or incomplete revelation. They just see his humanity. Even the disciples in, in the gospels accounts, they were slow to believe his own family. They were slow to believe he was the son of God. I want you to consider the words of the apostle Paul found in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I thank God who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a what? Blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, an opponent of the faith. He had Christians killed. But listen to what he says, but I received mercy. Here's why. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, Paul tells us he himself was a Pharisee. In 1 Timothy 1, he says that before his salvation, he, he did these horrendous things, but he did them out of ignorance and unbelief. That's blaspheming the Son of Man, Jesus. Now, why is it different to blaspheme the Spirit? Here's why. In Matthew's context, remember what's happened. Jesus has cast out demons by the Spirit of God, showing that he's empowered by the Spirit and that the kingdom of God has come. But the Pharisees are so hard-hearted that they ignore the clear evidence of the Spirit that God has given them. And they attribute this defeat to demonic power or Satan himself. 
And these critics are not just rejecting Jesus, but here's what they're rejecting. They're rejecting the Spirit's testimony of who Jesus is. I'm going to ask Zach, wherever you are, if you would come to the, the piano at this time. What's the unforgivable sin? It's a sin where one's heart becomes so hardened that they reject even the obvious revelation of who Jesus is. It's one who persistently, I believe, refuses to receive Christ and face what is obvious. How do you commit it? Uh, or have, let me, let, This is the question you all have. Have I committed that sin? Have you committed that sin? Well, only God knows, but, but here's what I, where I think I can give you some peace today. Most theologians agree on this point that if you are worried about committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you've likely not committed it because your heart is not in that hardened position. In closing, Dr. MacArthur in his commentary on the book of Matthew gives a great story, tragic story nonetheless, of an American naval force. Pay attention to me. Don't be distracted. So he tells the story of an American naval force that during World War II engaged in battle on an exceptionally dark night. Six planes took off from the carrier in search of enemy ships and submarines, but when they were in the air, a complete blackout was ordered on the carrier in order to protect them from attack. Thousands of soldiers were on the carrier. The planes didn't land before the blackout, and it was pitch black, and there's no way they could see to know where to land. And so tragically, the, each plane flew until it ran out of gas. And then one by one, they dove into the frigid waters where every crew member passed. In our text today, God uses the Holy Spirit to light the way, as it were, of the kingdom, to show the crowds who Jesus really is. But the Pharisees are so hard-hearted that they are in danger of God turning out the lights, as it were, so that further opportunity of repentance is forever lost. Remember what I said in the beginning, the way in which we respond to Jesus is everything. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.